a Podcast One production. Hello, I'm Gary Megan and welcome to A Plate to Call Home where we explore the stories behind the food and get to know some of my food heroes. Alistair McLeod has an unbridled enthusiasm. The much-loved chef and TV personality is bestowed with, as he describes it, the gift of the gab. And we think quit-witted too. He is best known for his roles on Channel 7's Great Day Out and Network 10's Ready Steady Cook. I've known Alistair for a long time and he always makes me laugh. But in this interview, he also brought a tear to my eye. So here he is, Alistair McLeod. Alistair McLeod, I was just reading your uh, intro and I love it. It says, unbridled enthusiasm for all things food and bestowed with the gift of the gab. What do you reckon to that? <laughs> oh, I like it. I like it. I think I wrote that myself. I mean, look, I think, you know, it has to be a job. It's a job that's driven by, by zeal, by fervour, by uh, passion, and not by remuneration. I mean, honestly, cooking and, and making money, that's... That's an oxymoron. That's like, you know, a light pint of Guinness, friendly fire, non-working mother. I mean, there's something so uh, visceral, so primal about the craft of cookery that it, 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 I'm 50, Gary Megan, and it never, uh, I still have a real sense of wonder uh, with it every day. Tell us why. Oh, I just, I think the fact that it's not just an empirical thing, it is that whole notion, that whole idea that, you know, you rest, you rust, you know, you, you never stop learning. <clears throat> Mark Twain said you can live for up to two months on a compliment. And so it's the type of job where you don't need to wait for the weekly numbers, the quarterly report to, to, to see if you've done a good job. But someone says, you know what, handsome Alistair, they say... Um, that was that was an incredible experience. Instant gratification, uh, you, isn't it? You immediately know your place in the universe. And you've talked about something to me, Gary Megan. You've talked about, and it's it's really resonated with me all these years. Per, uh, perfect delivery, imperfect experience. Mm. So, so I see my job as not because you know it's not just the provision of food or even of serve. You know, good services is the butter knife in the right spot, the wine glass in the right spot, and there's all those eleven teen elements that have to be right, but. It can still leave you cold, and it's about creating experiences for people. And and I think, you know, everyone's got a good, you know, bullshit radar to tell when you're not being sincere. I mean, I, I, I enjoy that. I, I really enjoy, I enjoy what I give and then how it comes back. Are you in a place that you're very happy with, an unexpected place maybe, right mm -hmm. now? Because, I mean, when I first met you, you were doing something entirely different. I mean, you, I think you were exec chef or head chef at Brett's Wharf. How many years ago is that? Maybe 15 yeah. Plus, but yeah, uh, yeah, it would be, would be, and maybe then twenty. <laughs> I remember you came in to, to Tank Restaurant, and we had just been Tank, given, yeah, you know, uh, John Lethlin had given us four out of five Australians. The local reviewer gave us seventeen out of twenty. So th there was that lovely sort of uh, uh, um, peer or or professional sort of recognition. And now uh, I'm a caterer, uh, and you know, I don't think any young cook aspires to be the chef of. With respect, you know, a prison, a hospital, a cruise ship. I'm not even going to linger there, you know, or, or a catering business. They're not. They're not juicy. They're not. They're. They're, they're not. You know, there's just not that sense of alacrity. There's no Michelin and, stars. There's no. That's right. There's no lobster on, you know, in fancy bowls. That's and right. And sommeliers just, swooping in with expensive options. 
exactly. But you know, I, I, I and it, it maybe it comes from what good judgment comes from experience, and experience comes from bad judgment. But I, 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 it, it doesn't matter whether you're flipping burgers or flipping foie gras. It shouldn't matter. You know, uh, excellence exists at every level, and and if I didn't think we could do, you know, approximate the same uh, quality of food, the, the food being, if you go along with the premise that it's part of what we provide, um, that you could do in the restaurant, plus all the other stuff that you do, you know, when you're doing someone's, you know, wedding, you know, we would do forty weddings a year with our business, Al Fresco Catering, PO Box seventy three, Sanford. <laughs> That number again, folks. And, you know, we would, and, and that's very, very enjoyable. You know, you're, you're part of creating milestones in people's lives and, and people, you know, food is a, is a powerful conduit. Has your motivation changed from, let's talk about specifically catering, from restaurants because you were driven by very different things to now as a, as a caterer? I, I felt that was it. I felt that was the, that, that was the, the pinnacle. You know, when you go into a kitchen and, you know, they put you on, <clears throat> I don't know, peeling, you know uh, picking the herbs and prepping the lettuce, and you're looking uh, with envy over at the guy who's making flames and making so. And then you get there, and, and and it's not what you think it is. It's a bit, you know, creative tension. You know, it's always that thing that's out of reach. And as it's all happened sequentially, it doesn't seem totally illogical to me uh, uh, to have gone down this route. I, I feel, in fact, I feel more enthusiastic about the craft now than I ever did. Um, but... But it was, it's a question of timing, you know? I didn't, that doesn't answer the question, I don't think. No, you know what? We'll get there because I'm sure it'll come out. I didn't envy you, I must be honest, when you made that switch and it wasn't through your own choice. We can talk a little bit about that mm. from Tank into something new. But when you started that uh, catering company, I just thought to myself, wow, you know, that's, it's going to be a lot of hard work. You know, there's, you know, when you're 26 and you might open a restaurant or you, sure. you know, you got all the energy in the world, unbridled enthusiasm. And there you are outside of Brisbane, you know, mm. on a property yeah. um, and, you know, starting a, a brand new business. What, what was going through your head at the time? I mean, let me answer you this way. If we fast forward to, you know, the, these past months, and I'm talking now uh, as in early June 2020, um, you know, I had a talk with, to Ashley, uh, my wife, my partner in the business, um, in fact, I listened to to uh, Darren and Kath, Darren Purchase and Kath Claringbull's podcast a little bit earlier and talked about their sort of that relationship, that friction between personal and professional. And we were talking about, are we less happy now that we've got less money? And the answer is no. And so by the same token, the, the answer is when you've got more of the stuff, are you more happy? And it, you would have to, you have to answer that. The answer has to be the same. And so when sort of my hand was forced and... Uh, we went into, but before we went into catering, we were actually, we spent two and a half years, I spent two and a half years as a carny. And we did a market, uh, a farmer's market um, in the centre of Brisbane and also down at New Farm. And I could see people going, are, you're Alistair, aren't you? And I went, you're that chef of considerable repute, aren't you? <laughs> and, I went, <laughs> and I said, yes. And, and, and so you know what they meant. I know what they meant. They were going, oh, this is a step back or that, that's what they were alluding to. And look, there was definitely a, a, a bruise to the ego going through that period. But Gary Megan, honestly, for for I allowed myself, you know, you know, a few bottles of wine, and I, that was it. You know, it's your best days are ahead of you. And we did this market stall, 
and it 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 totally it served to really reboot what we do. It served to really identify for me what good food is and what good food isn't. And and we our market was the very expression of the market on that day. We did you know, uh, we did a 90-second omelette that was never cooked in 90 seconds. And we used <laughs> eggs from over there. We used tomatoes from there. We used cheese from there. Butter from this curmudgeon Frenchman. Well, just this Frenchman. And and so every dish we did was this snapshot, this moment in time. And, and that is, I mean, that is the, the very... Uh, 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 epitome, the very uh, essence, quintessence of what cooking should be. It was a toasty, don't get me wrong. But it really, sir, it, it, it brought me much closer to the earth. It, it, it got me out of, you know, in, 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 in large part running big restaurant with, you know, 100 staff and 25 chefs, got me out of the office kind of thing. And it just totally rebooted and made me much more sensitive and empathetic with uh, what was happening with the raw ingredients? You know that whole notion that you can't polish a turd. You know, it, 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 not it, in no profession is it more sort of salient than than with cooking. Is it was it a natural progression? Do you think? So you you said you you kind of refreshed, hit the reboot. You know, did you start to you know formulate this kind of idea with Ashley and go? You know, what about this? Should we move out of town? Do we look for a property? Because you know your first posts were all grass and. You know, a couple of young cattle and a dog, right? Or a few dogs, actually. I think you you foster a few. Yeah, yeah. I mean, was that deliberate? I mean, was that Ashley? Was it you? I just think all the ducks lined up. And I think when, and I really see it as an opportunity, when the opportunity to, if you like, get out of restaurants was there, it was, well, let's not do that again. Let's, Let's not do that. You know, probably taking it as far as I could take it. You know, if I'm being really sort of, uh, uh, you know, cooks and their bombast and their ego. I'm comfortable. I took it as far as I could, and so it 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 seemed like a logical thing to try and do something different. And there was a precedent, and it was it was set uh, by a, a mutual friend of ours, a guy called Matt Galinsky, and he went out of restaurants, and he was doing market stalls, selling his product. And I can remember being in the restaurant, earning a good good lots and lots of money, and not being at the coal face right there at the vanguard every day. Going, he's standing in puddles in in Nusa at the the, the soccer field selling his pot, and and he and and I would say, hey, let's go out Saturday because I can roster myself off. And he said, no, no, I've got a wedding to do, and then I've got another function to do the next morning. And at the time, I thought, gosh, that sounds like hard work. You don't miss it. No, sir. No, I don't. Um, I, I love the fact that we can, we can. I feel I can cook as close as shit is to swearing the food that I want to cook. Um, I like the fact that from a commercial point of view, it, it makes a bit more sense. I can be, it's leaner with those things that just leak out with restaurants, um, labor costs leaks out, food costs leaks out, all those, and you know, power. I can, we can control it well. And that gives me a lot of satisfaction too, as a cook. Um, well, a restaurant, you're always, always open. Everything's running. Mm, it's all yeah. turning regardless of whether or not a customer walks through or not. It's yeah. a little bit different, isn't it, to, you know, having a wedding booked in January and planning for that event. Although, yeah. in saying that, you know, I had a little catering business for about three years and mm. I didn't make any money out of it for whatever reason. I started too big. Yeah. I tried to go for the big stuff. And I remember yeah. talking to Matt Galinsky and said, because he had Rolling Don Mardi, right, That's back right. in the day. And I said to him, you did it right. You started small. He goes, yeah, market stall, making a few products, seeing if it moves. And then 
uh, reacting to, hey, could you do a birthday party or could you do a that's dinner right. for six, dinner for 12, dinner for 100? And I went, and oh, yeah, that's right. It's the essence of kind of good business, lean business, starting small and growing into your market. That's what that's you've right. done, isn't it? Very much so. And I sort of imagine it like my your ice cube tray and you've got it and you want to fill it up with water and I imagine you can put it under the tap and you can just wiggle it around and try and fill the little cells of water up or you can just fill it up at one end and just tilt it slightly and just let it, not organically, but let it build with more purpose and a bit more direction. And we, we have seen, as you would imagine, we're seven years in now and we've seen lovely, gentle growth each year. We've been able to bring on more staff and just keep the cost base, this, you know, uh, pulling away from the revenue base. Um, and so that's that's very satisfying. And the other thing is, I've got to say, just going back to the actual craft of cookery, you know, really in a restaurant, even if you're, you know, to change a dish on the menu, you go, well, I've seen this wonderful quail supplier out near Toowoomba, and then you have to put that supplier into the system, and then you have to reprint the menu, you have to cost it up and make sure it all stacks up. And by the time you've done that and you've tasted the dish, the sort of that lovely, vis- the, the, the sort of the, the, the magic of it has gone. Whereas for me, no two days are the same. We would do, uh, you know, we've got about five functions next week, three of them on the day that the next level of restrictions are easing, <laughs> i got to say. Um, and no menus are the same. Probably doesn't make great commercial sense, but there's a lovely sense of genuinely being able to respond to what's at its best. And when you have seven years under your belt and your customers are all repeat offenders, they're virtually saying, feed me, feed me. You know what I like? I don't really want the venison. I'll have the beef. I don't want the partridge. I'd rather have the chicken. And that's fine. And you, you, you get to understand them. And, you know, and they're, they're customers for life. How different does that business feel from, let's say, week one to now, you know, seven years on? Do you still remember week one? Remember yeah, commissioning the, the stove or the oven or? All of that stuff, building the kitchen and pushing go on the website. And we were so proud. I mean, so we, we were up with uh, Ashley, my wife's uh, godfather up in the Sunshine Coast. We were saying, what have we got to call this bloody thing? And he <laughs> said, what about... And he just said it. This this epiphany, Al Fresco. It's Al. It's fresh, by and large, and it's a company. <laughs> but at the time when we were the carnies at the markets, we were we were Al Fresco, and it just speaks. I, I, I love the name. I love the name. And to to, to go from a, a name to now being a name that, that is uh, one of the preeminent caterers in in Queensland, it, it it gives me a real sense of pride. It's got much more longevity, I think. With exception, um, when you are blazing a trail as a chef, there's, it's probably not as fashionable. It's probably not as it's probably not sub- subjected to the same amount of of, of fashion that restaurants and bars uh, can be. And but we can respond to that fashion within our food. But people want to know that when I book you, that you can do my function for a thousand people, yeah. and you won't stuff it up. There's different aspects to your cooking that you have to employ. That you know, I probably couldn't do what the guy in a ninety-seat restaurant could do anymore, and and I, I don't think they could do what we do now. Yeah, absolutely. And so, yeah. So I think we're 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 sort of we've we've we're growing and we're now maturing well. I think. Love the enthusiasm after mm. so long cooking. Mm. Where were you born, Gary? I was born in uh, Larne, which is just north of Belfast, um, to an Australian mother. 
and a, and a Belfast man, uh, Donald McLeod. And my mother was a uh, a singer, an entertainer, cabaret when that genre of entertainment was was the the entertainment of the day. And she was working, I think she was probably at that time working for RTE, Radio Telefasheren, uh, Irish television. And we lived in Dublin, right opposite the RDS in Ballsbridge until 1975. And then we moved north to Belfast. And I inherited uh, two brothers and a sister from my daddy's first marriage. Uh, so there was all of a sudden four kids uh, and my Australian mummy and daddy growing up in South Belfast um, in, you know, the... The seventies, the seventies, yeah, yeah. Could you yeah. have picked a worse time? I'm just curious. I know, I know. You know, I, I mean, you know, I grew up in the seventies and the eighties, mm. and people in Australia wouldn't connect what was going on in Northern Ireland back then. Do you remember it really? Very much so, very much so. I mean, my father worked in the license trade. He he uh, ran the Abercorn <laughs> Pub in Belfast. It was blown up twice uh, while he uh, under his stewardship. Um, I can remember going to see King Kong, not the Peter Jackson, further back, not the black and white one, further forward, <laughs> the one with Jessica Lang and Jeff Bridges, and they finished on top of the World Trade Center, that, that one. And we went to see that, maybe 77, something like that. And that was in the ABC in Belfast, and the very next night, the, the, the cinema was raised to the ground. I mean, I, uh, my folks were, what well, my first job, my folks were good friends of hoteliers, uh, our hotelier uh, Isabel Huddleston and she ran a place called Le Mans House in Belfast sort of a country sort of thing and not not necessarily going for any you know culinary awards but a, a lovely lovely place that was my first job uh, 55 P&R Gary Megan peeling spuds wow. we put cumber big spuds bucks. big sacks of cumber spuds into the the rumbler and it brushed the skins off and my father would say my son's an eye specialist <laughs> I'd take the eyes out of the bloody spuds <laughs> But but in 1978, it was, I mean, it's, it's funny. I mean, I can't remember what I had for lunch yesterday. <coughs> it was February the 17th, 1978, and the IRA, you know, planted a bomb there and they had petrol with sugar in it so that when the petrol lands on you, it sticks to you. They, they thought there was a, a group of uh, Royal Ulster Gestabulary, uh, RUC convention thing going on there. It was a week before. So there was 400 pe- 450 people there at a dinner dance and there was, you know, I think there was a dozen deaths and it was, you know, one of the worst tragedies. And it, I mean, that was, this was 1978, so there was a lot of cricket still to be played, but that was, that really, uh, I mean, I can remember sitting at home, you know, just sitting at home in uh, 62 Ardenley Avenue, just off uh, Ravenhill Road. Ian Paisley's church was at the end of our street. You'd hear a bomb go off, Gary, and you'd go, I wonder if that's a big one far away or it's a small one close by. And I can remember, you know, going in to do your Christmas shopping and you'd have to go through turnstiles, get uh, padded down, just go and do your shopping. And, you know, a bomb would go off and everyone would just stop. And then everyone would just move on. And and my mother worked, uh, she worked as an entertainer, also worked in commercial radio uh, for 37 years over there. And, you know, media was, was often a, a, a target. And... Yeah, I mean, really, really, you know, like in most towns, maybe there's pubs you know not to go into and pubs you know to go into. But people need to know what school you go to to determine whether they like you or not. And, you know, it, it, it still simmers away to this day. I mean, if you're if you're an 18-year-old now in Belfast, you know nothing but peace. An uneasy history, maybe? 
Yeah, it, it's still there. It still simmers away, I, I think. It can't um, be anything else, can it? Do you, do you, I was just thinking there, do you, do you feel, how did you get out of that with your wonderful sense of humour and your sense of the world intact? My mother was from here. Her father was born uh, up in the Torres Strait and there was Filipino and Spanish and Sri Lankan and all this. Her- there was no room for prejudice in our house. So I'm sort of an- answering it indirectly here, but th- the fact that my mother was from Australia, it didn't occur to people that she might have a religion. <laughs> it didn't matter. She was from Australia. And so a lot of that on a day-to-day basis when you're going to school, when people are really trying to identify what foot you kick with, we were I sort of felt quite sort of protected from that. And stuff like petty crime was very small in Northern Ireland. No one broke into people's houses because that was oh that's you know, you'd be sorted out for that. It was it was this just this big political, uh, uh, ideological uh, uh, conflict that was going on. On a day-to-day basis, you know, there was definitely at this... Ireland has never had prosperity, really, other than those sort of Celt- 10 years of the Celtic tiger. It's always subsisted. It's subsisted with the food that it eats, with the... You know, we always got the movies later than everyone else. We got Marks and Spencers later than everyone else, you know. Uh, we did... You know, are we ever getting McDonald's here? It was, And so when you didn't know anything else, I guess, you know. But my mother always talked about this, you know, this promised land, yeah. this place called Australia, and... And, you, and how, did, how did your mum, sorry to interrupt there, but how did your mum, because your mum's Torres Strait Islander, is that right? Her father was born on uh, TI and then lived on, on uh, Arab in the northeastern Torres Strait. And then they moved to Cairns, him and his, uh, this lady who was a shopkeeper in Cairns, Ivy Agnes Guevara, my nana, who lived to just shy of her 101st. They moved to Cairns. Uh, my mother went to St. Monica's in Cairns and then she was sent down to boarding school in Brisbane. And that's the school that my two older girls went to, which is a lovely sort of uh, uh, sort of lineage. But she was an entertainer. She was one of the first women, Gary Megan, to sing in the Opera House in 1974. She sat probably near that Matt Moran's place and <laughs> sat and watched them watched them building the Opera House. And she she was one of the first women. I mean, and a woman of colour to sing in that. She had her own show on Channel Nine here called In Key. In like you know the late sixties, she used to go out with a fella called John Laws. My goodness, true story. Gee. And then she, and she went walkabout. She said, "I'm gonna, I'll be away for two years." Australia was a small place there. I've got to go and do it. And she she sang out in the South Seas and through Europe, and then was singing in cabaret clubs in the north of England. And my father was an impresario, and he. Uh, him and his business partner, I got to tell you, him and his business partner Trevor Kane in 1964 brought uh, the Beatles to the Kings Hall in Belfast. And my father used to look after a fellow called George Ivan Morrison. And when George Iverson, Ivan Morrison hit the big time, he dropped the George and dropped the letter I. And he used to have to <laughs> he used to have to coax him onto the stage with a bottle of Bushmills, saying, "Van, get onto that bloody stage, you curmudgeon, <laughs> bloody rumbunctious." And he still is, of course. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and so he booked this lassie, uh, stage name Candy Divine, to to sing in his club uh, Tito's in Belfast, and she went over in sixty eight, I think sixty seven, and she sang and they fell in love and she they fell in love and you know I guess Gary if the person that you fall in love with is from Tehran or you know Bosnia or whatever you know that's the person that 
and that's it. And it's the people that make a place. And she, he took around the Atlantic Drive around Donegal and up around that sort of northwest coast of Ireland. She fell in love with the place and up the Antrim coast and the Giants coast. Well, and she fell in love with it. She fell. She comes back here and she goes, "Oh, I miss it." <laughs> oh, that was going to be my next question. <laughs> what did she tell you about it? But you've answered some of it. Why do you think? Why do you think that was? I mean, Ireland is a beautiful place. I mean, the West Coast, I mean, I've driven mm, up around mm. through Galway and all. It's just yeah. beautiful. What a difference in life. Did she talk to you about that? Did you, yeah. Did you have a sense of her leaving her home, having not been to Australia at the time? I mean, my mum lives with us, Gary. Lives 100 metres away on our property. And she, I think she was in conflict. She, she, she went over there and she became a big fish in a small pond, probably. I hope you're not listening, mother. But it's probably <laughs> true, you know. I mean, she, my mother is a big girl. She's dark. She's got this honey chocolate voice. She sings like an absolute dream. And so she stood out and she, she's very well known. She, I mean, over there, I'm her son. Over here, she's my mother. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and she was loving my daddy. Fell in love with the man, the love of her life, and and her career was just going fantastically well. And yet, with that, she just left behind the country that she loved, you know. And and she came back. I, I came back with her. I came here in 1980. Uh, uh, the family home was 55 Goulburn Street, about excuse me, 20 minutes from where uh, I'm sitting right now. And I pass it most days. I pass this this house, this house that Nana and Poppy, when they moved down from Cairns to Brisbane, set up home. And I can remember coming here as a oh, 10, 11 year old. I, I was, I mean, that was five flights in that in those days. I reckon it must have been, oh, Belfast to London, London to Muscat out in the Emirates, and then to Singapore, then to Sydney, then to Brisbane. Mental. So there was a real sense of wonder. Even plane travel was exciting then, you know. And I remember the, the size of the place. I remember the heat. I remember, you know, meeting relatives that my mother had described and them being just these wonderfully friendly people. A, a real sense of, of just, a real sense of wonder of, of this place. Everything was was outside, you know, at home everything's inside and it's the, the sun comes down and the sun never comes. You know, there was a real a real sense of wonder about it. And we didn't do anything. I don't remember in that trip doing anything extraordinary. We went down to the beach to see Uncle Bob, who had a little six-pack place just down at Tugan, I think. I don't know. And just meeting these relatives that they seemed to think differently and talk differently to how people did at home. I'm there. I was, I was waiting for you to keep going. <laughs> That's your first visit. Did your mum, was that just a holiday? That was for a month. Uh, in, in So 19- you went back? Yeah, so 1980, back. you went back. So you finished school in in oh, yes, Ireland, sort of, sort of. Yeah, finished school. Kind of finished school. I, did my O levels, did my A levels. Didn't do terribly well. Um, but in, in in the interim, I'd been working for 55 P and R doing the spuds. And even then, I mean, it's it's not like I haven't got a convenient story there. But I can remember, you know, the pastry chef, and I saw his meringues, and I would pinch them. We'd come in. We'd start at eight fifteen. Was the start of our shift for some reason. Peeling the spuds, and and I'd, I'd be, I would be able to work out by looking at them which meringues he had. Of, I mean, this is now me understanding this that he had cooked too much, and ones that still had the chewy centre kind of thing, you know. Um, and we used to blanch the, we used to get the cumber spuds, we'd put them through the chipper, rinse all the starch out of them, and we'd blanch them. And then that was that's that was the extent of our 
our job. And I remember, I remember anecdotally finding that interesting and not even understanding why I was doing that, that first step. Um, I don't know if I terribly enjoyed that. I, I could, the, the, the chef was a female chef, Avril, I can still remember her. And their sous chef was Wesley. And they were formidable people, really scary, <laughs> scary people, churning out just vast, vast quantities of food. And then, and then I would go in at the nighttime, well, maybe not from there. Then I went to work in a cafe and I was the only person that cleaned the fryer and I only worked there on a Saturday. I only worked there on a Saturday. So I would get in in the morning, clean out this sort of thick layer of sludge. You got cleaned once a week and you did it. Once a week, Gary <laughs> Megan. And all they seemed to sell was bloody chips. Did you? But I would go from that job. cooking loud back in those days. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Easier, I hate to say, but easier to clean a fryer when it's full of animal fat. Yeah, and when yeah. it's full of cottonseed oil. <laughs> correct, correct. Do you remember yeah, that? Yeah, I do remember that. <laughs> they do taste and, better. Not to all the vegetarians out there, I yeah. apologise. Sorry, Ashley. And and then I would go from there and work for my dad in the pub at night, and that was from seven till midnight. He paid, so the cafe at that point, so my wages were, that was $1.40 at the cafe, and then my father played £1.40, I should say, and then my father paid £2 an hour, to work in his club and it was like there was a discotheque and I worked from seven till midnight pulling pints pulling pints doing perno and black currant and you know all oh. these t- uh, Duboni and whatever it was all Baby these Shan. terrible drinks yeah yeah and I mean there was definitely work ethic comes from all that stuff they, they, they put us out to work from the age of 14 same with my older kids they've both been working uh, for us or for others since the age of 14 and then I finished my, my A-levels and then just I got out Gary I got out and 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 left. Um, and it's interesting. I, 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 let me. Can I say this? I I I went to see. It doesn't matter. It's not even Daggy. I went to see Ed Sheeran in concert, and he was talking with such uh, uh, longing for his home, and he lives where he grew up. And didn't he marry his childhood sweetheart there recently? And and I sort of thought, why don't I like the place I grew up? It's sort of. I, I sometimes get a bit nostalgic for it. Um, but at the time, I couldn't wait to get out. And it, it wasn't because of the troubles. It wasn't because my home life was beautiful with my mummy and daddy. I, I just I just needed to spread my wings, you know. Where did you go? I went to a place called uh, Glasgow, which is just why as much you? sick. Oh, I know. <laughs> I know. As much you sectarian. Bell. You know why? Because it's uh, there's history there, right? Lots of Irish left Belfast and went to Glasgow. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there's uh, really kindred, really, really yeah. kindred and real, really tribal as well, you know, Correct. Rangers, Celtic and all that stuff. Yeah. And was just in the shit, didn't have a job, went and worked at a restaurant, £2.32 an hour. Not that you were and, keeping track of your yeah. hourly rate, but it's going up, I like it. Soaring. Yeah. £2.32 and I worked on the floor of this Italian sort of restaurant thing, Il Cappuccino. And I worked there for probably too long, Gary Megan, but I spent maybe a year and a half on the floor. And I can remember the chef, his name was Jamie Randall, and he did the stuffed mushrooms. Life wasn't too short, apparently. Stuffed <laughs> mushrooms. And, and I'm sort of, I can see myself going into the, and him and I had this lovely, we fought, but we had this lovely relationship. We'd always go to the pub every night. And I would say, there's only seven mushrooms. You had nine. The last plate had nine. And he said, just send it out. And I would go, but Jamie. Jimmy, you see, this custer came in last week. You don't see them. They come in, you know, this lovely, lovely exchange and and never the twain shall meet. So I was in this ridiculous position, Gary, at the age of, oh, it's ridiculous. It's it's embarrassing, you know. 21, running the kitchen, you know. 
doing the, the Napoli sauce, making the lasagna, making the pizza dough every morning and cutting up the mushrooms and all the pizza toppings and all the pasta stuff. And then I decided, well, this is wrong. This is, this is a bit daft. So then I sent myself to college and did that on... I worked for him for Nello six days a week, and on the seventh day I went to college, and I spent two years there, and then I moved to another job and completed my apprenticeship just all of my own steam. And because I felt there was a bit of a monkey in my back not having done it, because I felt, well, I, I'm, I'm accomplished. I know my way around things. I can handle pressure. I can uh, meet deadlines. Uh, I'm getting feedback that says it tastes okay. And I, I went through the, the college thing and I thought, okay, well, there was, it's a bit like, if I can fast forward, I spent time working in France and I sort of thought, is there, what, what is it that they know that we don't know? Surely this is the bastion of, of cooking. And then you go, that's well, not, mm. just, just the same as you and I. But I did the college course, still wasn't enamored by the job really and still worked terribly, terribly hard. Did your mum move back to Australia with your dad? No, never did. Never did. No, he passed away sort of eight years ago and she moved back then. She moved back then. And they, we were always talking about it, Gary. And I still think in Australia our best days are ahead of us. I still get a sense of that. And maybe it's just the years away from the old country. But I think there are still greater opportunities to, to give it a go here. You know, I think, and this may be wrong. This is just my opinion, of course. You know, I think if you're in the service industry in the UK... There's a sort of your servile. There is that sort of upstairs, down, that sort of class thing. Here, it's much more egalitarian, I think. You know, a chef can be uh, interviewed on a podcast. A chef can be on the television, <laughs> Gary Megan. And, and of course, that exists at home as well. But I, maybe it's yourself when you come somewhere new. Maybe it's that. Yeah. Can, can I ask a question? When your hmm. dad died, did you have a close relationship with him? Were you still... Backwards and forwardsing, you know. Did you ring him once a week? Was it a was it a close relationship? Oh, my daddy. Oh, Gary. Um, yeah. I, no. Did we talk to each other once a week? Probably not. Um, it's funny when I think about my daddy. I think about me being a daddy as well. It's a really, you know, you miss someone when they're gone, kind of thing. You know. Um, Yes, I had a good relationship with my daddy. Uh, I enjoyed working with him. I enjoyed, I think I enjoyed um, the validation he gave. When your daddy says you've done a good job, it's a very nice feeling, you know. Um, yeah, um, yeah, I had a good relationship with my daddy. Um, and he was always, he always had a real interest in what I was doing. He used to love, you know, coming to the restaurant and he would say, oh, the oysters are good, you know, the oysters from... Karingal Island, Southwest Morton Island. They're not quite as good as Skedrick Island, <laughs> you know, in Strangford Lock. And I go, geez, Father, you're a hard marker, you know. I dropped my mother down a <laughs> meal the other day, some, you know, sh shoulder of lamb with uh, braised radish and this charred salsa. And she went, yeah, it's up to standard. I mean, she's got a bit of that Irish sort of dryness to her as well. She's, don't yeah, take I had it, a good relationship. Don't with take yourself too seriously, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, that's Because right, we'll remind right. you. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> but, you know, there's there's parts about my daddy that, you know, look, he should have come here, Gary. You know, he he, he was a Belfast boy. What, stop, his, what stopped him? Yeah, my, my dad, so daddy's daddy died when he was, I think, 11 or 14. And my dad, you know, he recalled being under the house that he ended up, that he grew up in and ended up buying from his mother, he didn't go far, you know. Um, 
he remembers hiding under the stairs, listening to the, the bombs drop in the Second World War, dropping on, on the Braniel Hills and Shandon Park behind him. And my mum thinks, and I'm not being sort of disloyal saying this, but my mummy will listen. She listens to your podcast, Gary. She says, um, I think daddy's daddy said to him, you look after your mother. You look after your mother. And my daddy called his mummy every day, Gary. And she lived, you know, 10 minutes away in Belfast. He called her every day and would see her every second day. I mean, a wonderful son, you know. Maybe that's why I'm feeling emotional. I hope I'm as good a daddy as, as he was to his mum. Or, he, you know, as he's as good. He, he had a real sense of family, a real sense of purpose in that regard. Um and I think that's what bloody stopped him coming here, you know. I mean, he would have, he loved it here. He loved coming here. But I think he was just a Belfast boy. I think he really was just a Belfast boy. Yeah, worlds apart, isn't it? Mm-hmm. And that's okay. I think, you know what, you feeling that way, I think when you do become a dad and certainly, you know, your girl's getting older and you've got mm-hmm. a, you know, a younger child as well. So you're all <laughs> over the place, let's be honest. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And I think it's quite natural to feel that. It's, it, you know what, it's lovely to get a little bit emotional. I love making this series and I hope that you love listening too. If you do, subscribe and send us a message because believe it or not, we actually read those messages. What we want to know is what you think about the show, more importantly about the conversations that we have with our guests. We love hearing from you. That's what I'm trying to say. You can do that on Apple Podcasts, Podcast One Australia or wherever you listen. And if you're feeling like it, maybe even recommend the show to a friend. You never know, they might find it as delicious as you do. What's your connection like with your mum's family? Has it become stronger as the years have gone on or is it something that... I mean, they have been a big part of my life, you know, um, albeit from from a distance. Uh, my, my mother's brother, and he passed away some years ago. He was like a, a father to me when I first came here. Um, I vis- He was in the Australian Army. I visited them in uh, Washington, D.C., in... 1977, I watched, uh, we, I remember lying under the Washington <laughs> Silver Monument. Silver Jubilee, 77. It was the Silver hey. Jubilee as well, that's right. <laughs> so that was, yeah, so that was, yeah, there would have been things in July. So I would have been earlier that month of 1977, I would have been lying under the Washington Monument. I remember seeing bats go over, watching fireworks go off on, on Independence Day. Um and I've got cousins here, Gary, and I've got aunties here. My auntie, or my cousin Joe was over the other day. And so th- there's a real sense of, of Australianness. I was the Australia Day ambassador. Uh, uh, the Queensland government called and said, Alistair, we'd like you to be the Australia Day ambassador. Uh, where would you like to go? And I said, can you be the uh, Australia Day ambassador in the Maldives? Thanks. <laughs> they went, yeah, no, you can't. And I said, you know what? I would love to be the Australia Day ambassador for the Torres Strait Islands. And, of course, there's lots of sensitivities there with uh, uh, community uh, celebrating, not celebrating, but acknowledging Australia Day. And they said that position has not been taken. And so I, I we were up uh, earlier this year up in the Torres Strait. And, you know, and, and I said to the guests, I said, look, normally this position is taken by, you know, estate, former Australians of the year or people leading the field in medicine or in media. I said, I'm a cook. And then I explained to them my my genealogy. 
my father's father, Pedro Guevara, he perished in uh, the, the biggest cyclone. This, and to this day, still the single largest cyclone to, t- to make landfall in Australia at Bathurst Bay in uh, 1898. Um, and and there is a plaque there that acknowledges those who had died. And there was name, 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 and 23 black fellas. You know, this is, you know, in different times. Um, and as I went to sit down, people said, we're family, Alistair, we're family, we're Guevara, we're Kennedys, we're Pitch, we're Savages, we're Sailors, we're Thaides. And I love it up there. There's something There's something very soulful about that that I, I, that I connect with, you know. And, and so I don't sound it, but I, I, feel, I really feel very Australian. I have never met anybody who's more proudly Australian than you are <laughs> with an Irish I mean, accent. No, yeah, but, yeah. I, but it always makes me laugh because I go, you are fiercely proud of Queensland. I think when, um, well, this is way back, I think when we first met on the Good Food and Wine show, mm. you know, it was all about, and you, your knowledge is encyclopedic. I mean, it's one of the reasons you're still an ambassador for Lockyer. Yes, Lockyer sorry, Valley, and yeah. um, because you're so proud of that. So, do you think that's one of the reasons you feel so connected? Do you think there's something in that, in that genealogy, as you say, or do you think it's just because Big Sky, different mm. to Ireland? What do you reckon? I, I think it serves my craft well. In the UK, it was very important to me to know. You know, this is a while ago now. Who? Uh, Alistair Little was, or Andrew mm. Fairley, or Nick Nairn, or Paul Rankin, or uh, up-and-coming chef Gordon Ramsay, Marco Pierre. It was to know the chefs and to have their books kind of thing. Whereas when I came here, it seemed to me to be much more important to know the produce and where it came from. I, I found it, I'm sure you did too, I found it. I had to really reboot my cooking, you know. And I was missing halibut, turvet, rascas, Dover sole, and didn't know what to do with Barramundi and Red Emperor and Gurnard and all these weird and wonderful fish and so I and maybe I you know guy if I'm being really candid if I I probably knew my limitations with the the craft of cookery you know I think I still think cooking is probably and this is probably someone who's only got five percent five percent technical skills in very large part cooking is zeal and then it's it's confidence and and where my confidence comes from is I feel is is knowing where the produce has come from. I, I really, I really love that aspect of it. I did a thing recently. Uh, you were talking about uh, the Lockyer Valley. It's hour and fifteen minutes from where we're standing right now, and it produces like ninety percent of the country's winter vegetables. Not not the rock and roll stuff, carrots, you know, onions, brassica, all that sort of stuff. And I did, did a dinner out there recently, and there was politicians and sort of dignitaries. The people I was most anxious cooking for were the farmers whose produce I had there. Because I didn't want them to I didn't want them to think that I would, you know, cut it into rhombuses or parallelograms or make <laughs> foams or dots or airs. It was just to have the confidence to just leave it alone. And for them to say, that's a really good job. That, that, that's better than any food critic. For me, that's for, really that's a bigger compliment than any, any food critic. And I think Queensland sometimes has a bit, uh, or did have, a monkey on its back for being parochial. And that word can be used in a sort of pejorative way. But I don't think it's a negative word. I think it's positive. I love being parochial. I mean, there's no there's no people more parochial than people from Manhattan. They don't look beyond the ends of their own noses. I, 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 I'm more, I, I can get more than enough fulfillment 
from the panoply of produce I have right on my doorstep. I mean, <laughs> when you look, when you consider winter, spring, summer, fall, I mean, it, 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 it is more than enough engagement for me. Um, but uh, one of the big chefs when I came here, people like Russell Armstrong, David Pugh, Gillian Hurst, and I can remember talking to Russell, and he's, uh, you, know, you know, you know Russell, don't you? Yeah, of course I do. And I can remember Russell talking about, you know, if the best truffles are in Perigord, they're the ones I'll use. And if, if I need to get, you know, duck from land, that's where I'm going to get it from. And, you know, I guess if you're in Dubai and they, they grow nothing but dates, then maybe that's, that's, that's your charter. But I think if you're, if you're in the, the middle and in the midst of this food conversation of, of, of provenance, of origin, of source... It's it, it's not even a good idea. It's you've, it's your duty bound. You have obligation to do it. I think. And in these times, I don't know when you're going to um, present this uh, podcast, but as of this moment right now, never has it been more timely to look in your own backyard. And so yeah. parochial, think guilty. Yeah. But you know, don't forget, food has come such a long way mm. in the last twenty years. And Russell <laughs> is. A wonderful chef. He was at the Connell. I, I trained yeah. at the Connell. I was there like four years. <sighs> yeah. So I understand where he's from. And back in those days, you earned the right for a recipe. You know, you had to, <sighs> you know those spuds you're talking about? Yeah. You'd be running up and down to the rumbler before anybody showed you how to make a pom souffle for, you know, donkey's years. Yeah. And I remember talking to him upstairs actually at tables at Tuong when I first yes. came to Australia. And he was so adamant the, the way we learned how to make sauces at the Connell, and I left the Connell 15 years before, you know. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And uh, it was the only way you could make them. It was the right way. It was the only mm -hmm. way. And I actually walked away from that conversation going, I admire the man because he has utter confidence and utter conviction in what he learned and what he believes about food. And at the time, I was really confused because I'd mm. arrived in Australia and I was trying a little Thai and cooking a little Vietnamese. And I think I'd kind of, I'd gone from the confidence of being a really good French grounded chef to all of a sudden, what do I do with lemongrass and coriander and lily pillies and, you know, oh, duck's tongues. You know, like I was just, wow. I agree with you. I mean, I really do agree with you. I Sense think of place was a difficult thing to grasp in a short period of time. I think you're duty bound to... Get all the pieces of the jigsaw puzzle and tip them out every now and again. I mean, if I was to lift Alfresco PO Box 73 Sanford and <laughs> drop it in, okay, I don't know, I'm making Kananara or in Margaret River or in uh, Nandi in Fiji, you would be drawing from a totally different lexicon of ingredients. You could say, well, you'll still, I'll still cook the same way, but I think you need to be more word of the moment, nimble a bit more. You need to be able to... As much as I cook for myself, I'm I'm trying to synthesize and distill what it is my customers want to eat, and then over deliver back to them. I think there's it's funny. I just I, I was doing some I, I uh, present on a local television show, and I was doing a dish yesterday of I said, you know, cooks on television. You know what I'm talking about, Gary Megan. I said they're always giving you bloody tips. I said I'm going to give you not one, not two, but three. Secret to perfect crackling, secret to perfect mash, and how to demystify, decode making sauces. You know, chefs and their sauces, this alchemy. And so I made this really quick sauce, and I'm I'm making it going. I wonder what I wonder what the Gary Megans of this world would think about me doing this. But you know what? It's that comfort. You just go in and go. This is what I'm going to do. Is it absolutely empirical? Maybe for 
a certain person, that, that is the wrong way to do it. But I'm thinking, well, it tastes nice. And I got some pork trim and sweated it off in butter and oil and added in some vegetables and mushrooms and wine, reduced it down, stock in, month past it and... <laughs> Month and it was delicious. It was delicious. Was it, you know, did it have the heart and soul, the you know, the savory base that it should have after eleventeen hours simmering? Oh, probably not, but goodness. You know, I got a I got a confession to make and my daughter and I were talking about the other day. I said I did roast chicken or chicken was in the oven. Gravy or no gravy? And she just goes, Dad, can't have roast chicken. Without roast gravy. I said, okay. I said, lumpy or smooth? And it's a genuine question. She goes, lumpy, of course. And it's a really weird thing. And I must have unconsciously, subconsciously, unconsciously passed it on to my daughter. But the lumps taste great. It's a really funny thing. I don't know if it's my mother that passed it on to me, but I have made some of the best sauces on the planet, like and the most expensive. And there's something really satisfying about smashing, you know, like the residue, the sticky residue in the pan with, you know, the garlic cloves or a shallot or two that you've chucked in the pan, smashing it all in. And it's just, uh, and here's another thing, people are going to go, <gasps> oxo. Gary's vegan. Oxo cube. <laughs> and I put it in and I don't care whether or not it's smooth or not smooth. You know, you can put in the, uh, the, the broccoli water or whatever. And there's just something very home cooked and honest and just utterly delicious. And I think to myself, this is ridiculous. I should be passing this five times and finishing <laughs> with good quality butter. But you know what? It's just yum. And yeah, that's okay. Yeah, yeah. And, I, and I'm okay to admit that. And I'm very proud that my daughter likes lumpy gravy. Right. I don't think anyone walks out of, or ever walked out, and this is not to to dismiss, you know, the canon of cookery. They don't leave going. I really could tell, you know, you really you're you're passing it five times for you. I, yeah. I, I mean, Although getting, there, I, really must be, on a I must be honest, there's there's an there are occasions where I I've eaten things and I've gone, my goodness, mm. like the clarity of flavour on that or the Overcomplication is just pure, is necessary, and it's joyful and incredible. But it's very rare. But I've had it, and I've, and, it, and I've been amazed by it. And that's kind of the pleasure of talking about food and where it's all going. Alistair, thank you so much for putting a bit of time in and having a chat with me. You're, you're, you've always been this way. You, you're the guy that leaves the room and everybody's smiling, but we can't remember why. Do you know what I mean? And I love that about you. Can I just say uh, to your listeners, um, before we started the podcast, before we came to air, Gary said, tough act to follow. I've just been interviewing Ben <laughs> Shuri, the finest chef on the planet. Thanks, Gary Megan. Uh, Alistair Cloud, you're the finest man on the planet. Cheers for joining us. Thank you, sir. So now for my tips and tricks. And I'm really not trying to stereotype anybody, and I almost feel guilty saying it, but I've never met an Irishman that doesn't like a potato. Ooh, I can hear you cringe. But you know what? I love potatoes too. And if you want to know how to make the perfect mash, this is how you do it. Bake the potatoes. Don't boil them, which means bake them in their skin. So set the oven at 180 degrees, wash the potatoes, pop them straight onto the bars into the oven, and then cook them for about an hour. And they should be this. They should be crisp on the outside. And when you squeeze them, they should be soft. Next step is to cut them in half. And while they're still hot, put them through a ricer, or through a sieve, or put them straight into a pot and mash them while they're hot. I use milk, plenty of butter, pinch of salt, and very little more. And all you need to know is, if you want a super fine mash, it needs to go through a sieve or a ricer. If you don't mind a few lumps, then just mashing it old school. 
will be just fine. A Plate to Call Home is a Podcast One production produced by Dave Swalensky with audio production by Darcy Thompson. Thompson.